This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for May 23rd, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about inequality in health, and David Grimm is here to give us a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Living in poverty is bad for your health. Lack of healthcare resources and poor nutrition can account for much of the disparity in health outcomes between the haves and the have-nots. But some researchers say that the stress of being low on the economic ladder also takes its toll on health. I spoke with science news writer Emily Underwood about the complex relationship between inequality and health. Whitehall is pretty much synonymous with British government. Whitehall Street is the heartbeat of the civil service. The first Whitehall study began in 1967, and it looked at the mortality rates of about 17,000 people in this highly stratified environment. There are about five occupational grades, um, and it showed that the more senior you are in the employment hierarchy, the longer you could expect to live compared to people below you. For example, people in the lowest tier were nearly four times more likely to die of heart disease. Now, this went against the common wisdom that the higher up or the more stressful your job was, the higher you were in the hierarchy, the more prone you would be to getting heart disease because you had so much responsibility. This went against that. 
So they found this gradient, and the question was, why was it happening? So they tracked another group of people for 20 years, over 10,000 people, and found the same gradient. One of the striking things was that this gradient showed up in heart disease, in cancer, chronic lung disease, just a whole range of illnesses and ill health. So the major challenge and the reason for the importance of the studies was to understand what caused this slope distribution. It sparked off a whole research program to try to understand why this was going on. So one of the ideas suggested by this study is that health problems associated with lower rank may not be linked only with lack of money, but may have something more to do with the existence of a hierarchy. Uh, did they find examples of that in the Whitehall study? Right. So it's important to point out that everybody agrees that compared to the wealthy, poor people are less healthy. A child born in Norway, relatively rich country, will live approximately 30 years longer than a child born in Afghanistan. The reason that the experiment within the civil service was so interesting is that it eliminated the very poor and it eliminated the very rich from the experiment. And it only looked at people who all had access to health care, none of whom had serious material needs. Given that nobody was very poor, the question was, what could be causing this slope in health? So what Sir Michael Marmot, the social epidemiologist who ran the second wave of studies, hypothesized was that maybe it had to do with these interactions between people. So the very fact of being low-ranked and having people above you, perhaps people who could bully you at work or prevent you from having control over your time, that the psychological and social stress of that hierarchy could actually make you sick. So the examples they have found have primarily been correlations. One strong correlation, as I mentioned before, is that people who report very low levels of control tend to have higher rates of mental illness, heart disease, back pain, that kind of thing. That's, that's one correlation that this study has found. There are other social factors they have looked at, such as support from coworkers, support from bosses. They've really looked over the past few decades very comprehensively at many different social factors that could potentially be contributing to this that might have to do with being low-ranked. If someone has a higher rank, are they much healthier than someone with a lower rank and someone in the middle is kind of a middle amount healthier than the lower rank? You know, I don't know numbers behind that, but when you look at the charts, it looks like a pretty... Like a 45-degree angle. 45-degree angle. So it is a stepped phenomenon. Like the lower you are, the lower your health outcomes. That's exactly right. It's a stepped outcome. It's not like there's a threshold at which suddenly rank improves your health. Mm -hmm. It's that every step along the way, as you get higher up the hierarchy, you show a proportional increase in longevity and health. Are there any proposed mechanisms for how the existence of a hierarchy could have an effect on health? Mm -hmm. So all of the mechanisms for how social stress and rank might affect health really hinge on the psychological stress that it might cause. And researchers have been looking, you know, for a long time for different biomarkers that increase the cortisol levels or molecules associated with heart damage, that kind of thing. The evidence is pretty mixed. There are some animal studies that support the idea this could 
have an effect. One example is in baboons. There have been studies that show that baboons who are low-ranked and get sort of continuously bullied by upper-ranking baboons can develop higher levels of stress hormones, um, atherosclerosis, hypertension, than, than those at the top. There are also studies, however, that show if the hierarchy is unstable, if there's a lot of turnover up at the top, that it's actually the top-ranking males who fare worse. So the evidence is not clear on that point. Does the arrow ever point the other way, with health having an influence on status? So one of the biggest criticisms of the Whitehall study and the claims around it is that rather than the environment of stress and hierarchy affecting health and causing these poor outcomes, that maybe people actually ended up in the ranks that they're in because of poor health to begin with. So in 2011, for example, two Princeton economists sort of recrunched the Whitehall data and they concluded that health in childhood and early childhood experiences were better predictors of where people were in rank and also health-wise later in life than anything that the Whitehall studies had picked up when it came to environmental influences. Emily Underwood, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Emily Underwood writes about the complex interactions between health and poverty as part of a special issue on inequality. You can read more about what science has to say on the topic at www.sciencemag.org slash special slash inequality. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site, and he's here to share some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on wheels in the wild. Anyone who's owned a small rodent, mouse, gerbil, hamster, has probably wondered about these critters' fascination with the so-called exercise wheel. Are they running for freedom, to escape boredom and anxiety, or out of pure enjoyment? Well, scientists have been considering this problem as well. So Dave, how much wheel use are researchers seeing in the lab? In the lab, rodents use the wheel a lot. In fact, they can log more than five kilometers a night on these stationary wheels. And there is some evidence that they do it because they enjoy it. Rodents will go to great lengths to unlock a locked running wheel, and they seem to have a similar response to it as they do to food and even cocaine. (laughs) So it suggests that they're doing it because they like doing it. But the question is, is this really a normal impulse to want to run on these wheels, or is it some sort of obsessive behavior that's spurred by being locked up in a cage all day? How do you test this kind of thing? You put these wheels in your backyard. (laughs) And that's exactly what researchers did in this study. They put an exercise wheel in the backyard of one of the researchers. They trained an infrared camera on it. They set out some food to attract animals. And lo and behold, over three years, more than 200,000 animals use this wheel. And that includes uh, not just rats and mice, but shrews, frogs, and even a snail at one point. Okay, so that means that everybody loves a wheel. But there's also more to this than just understanding the mind of a rodent or a free rodent. It actually has some useful information behind it as well. 
yeah, if we can figure out why, for example, certain strains of mice are more sedentary than others, it could help shed light on genetic differences between people. Why are some of us more active than others? Why do some of us like to run marathons and others of us like to uh, sit home and watch television? So some implications beyond just the backyard running wheel. And there are some videos of this on the site. There is a very fun video on the site. Next up, we have a story on a mysterious disease. Kawasaki disease is one of the world's most baffling illnesses. There's no known causative agent, and it's been recognized since 1967. So, Dave, what do we know about this disease? Well, this is a disease that sickens 12,000 children every year in Japan, also strikes children in the United States, South Korea, and a few other countries. Children tend to come down with symptoms when they're between six months and five years old. They can develop a fever, a rash, and in very severe cases can have inflammation of the coronary arteries, which can lead to internal bleeding or even heart attacks. So the researchers in this study were building on earlier work that looked at how the geographical distribution of these cases might relate to the source of the disease. That's right. There was already some suggestion that the disease might be carried on the wind, and that came from a study of a few cases in both Japan and the United States that showed that there was a, seemed to be a spike in cases that coincided when prevailing winds were coming from Central Asia. And so in the new study, the researchers decided to probe this a bit further. What were they able to tell about the relationship between the wind and this disease? Well, what they did is they looked at cases stretching all the way back to 1970. They looked at a variety of places in Japan, and they found that indeed there seemed to be a correlation between a spike in cases and wind patterns. Specifically, they found that when the air was blowing into the cities, had spent a lot of time in northeastern China, specifically an area known as the Northeast China Plain, there seemed to be a rise in cases. Is there anything special about this region of China that might strengthen the link between the location and Kawasaki disease? Well, this is a highly agricultural region of China. And so the researchers suggest that perhaps there's a toxin that's produced by a fungus that lives on the crops in this area that gets picked up by the wind and transported to other areas of the globe. And the researchers actually did some preliminary aerial surveys where they collected air above this region, and they identified several species of candida, which is a fungus that's responsible for a lot of common human infections and can cause symptoms similar to Kawasaki disease. Now, they don't really have the smoking gun yet, but this is some intriguing preliminary research. Research. Lastly, we have a story on the purity of the placenta. It's been a while since we've talked about the human microbiome on this podcast. So Dave, where have our microbial friends turned up this time? Well, Sarah, they've popped up in the placenta. And this is really remarkable because the conventional wisdom is that the placenta is sterile. And the placenta is obviously very important for a developing fetus. It's how the fetus gets oxygen, food, and how the mother essentially removes waste from the fetus's environment. And for a long time, people had sort of suspected that this was a very sterile environment. And yet, babies are born with bacteria. And these bacteria don't match those from the vagina. Vagina, so there's the suggestion that they must come from somewhere else. And the placenta being so close to the newborn was one potential target. They needed to actually collect placentas and examine them. Where did they come from? They came from over 300 pregnancies that the researchers looked at. And the researchers extracted DNA from the placentas and they sequenced it for evidence of bacteria. And they found evidence of bacterial communities living on the placenta. And what was really interesting is these communities did not match those from the surrounding region. So they didn't match those from 
the vagina or the gut, but they did seem to match those from the human mouth. But just because the bacteria match those in the mouth doesn't necessarily mean that that's where they're coming from. Not necessarily. It could be that these bacteria have just evolved a very similar community to that seen in the mouth. Does this mean that there's no sterile part of the human body? (laughs) It's certainly starting to feel that way. But one other really interesting implication of the study is it suggests that if these bacteria are coming from the mouth, and there have been studies that have suggested that there is a link between gum disease and preterm birth, that taking care of your mouth may be a good way to take care of your baby. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, sir, we've got a story about how blocking pain receptors may increase lifespan. Also a story about how redwood trees grow so high. And for Science Insider, we have stories about how officials at the National Institutes of Health have been accused of improperly influencing the investigation of a premature infant study. Also a story about how Earth scientists are reacting to a possible loss of Russian GPS stations. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.